A couple of weeks ago, Amy shared the story of a man named Stephen. This is in Acts chapter 6, and he had been one of the leaders chosen by the first leaders of the church in Jerusalem to help lead a ministry that was distributing food to some of the poorest of the poor among them, particularly widows. Stephen, though, was more than an able administrator. He also had significant teaching gifts, and he uh, was a bold and brave advocate for Jesus. And that caught the attention of some Jewish leaders. So they brought him in for questioning. <clears throat> Amy described what then happened, how without flinching, Stephen boldly made the case that Jesus was God's Messiah. By the end of his long speech, he'd ticked everyone off. So they dragged him outside the city, threw rocks at him until he was dead. The result was that many of the leaders of the early Christian church fled Jerusalem out of fear of their lives. And in chapter 8, we meet a man named Philip, one of those who left Jerusalem. And he, like Stephen, was also mentioned in Acts chapter 6. He was also one of the administrators of this ministry to the poor and responsible for distributing food. And he also had significant ministry gifts as well. And so facing persecution, something we're going to talk a little more about next week, he left Jerusalem to tell people about Jesus. So the story we're going to look at today begins in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, when it says that Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now let me just give you a little political geographic background so you can understand where Philip is. Judea, which is the southernmost part of the nation of Israel, is its capital, or its, its major city, is Jerusalem. Capital of the entire nation, but it's also sort of the capital of the area as well. So that is where many Jews considered the home. That's where the temple was. It's the place um, that most went to to understand and identify as a nation. To the north of that, to the far north, is an area called Galilee. And that was where a number of righteous Orthodox Jews lived as well. So Jews saw those two places as sort of true Israel. In between was an area called Samaria. Samaria was, uh, by the way, the Jews living in the north and in the south both viewed the Samaritans the same way, with deep suspicion at best and open hostility at worst. And the history of this went back generations. In fact, it went back centuries to a time when the nation was divided into two, into Judah, which was the southernmost part of the nation, and Israel, the northernmost part. And they ended up with a series of different kings. And the northern nation of Israel, the area that we now call, or they call Samaria, um, was led by a series of awful kings who led the people further and further away from God. Eventually they intermarried, their religious practices strayed from Orthodox Judaism, and so by the time Jesus was around, a good Jew simply would not associate with the Samaritan. In fact, if Jews had to travel from the north to the south or the north, uh, south to the north, they often would go around the area of Samaria. They would make a longer trip out of it rather than walk through what they considered to be um, uh, impure territory. During Jesus' lifetime, he began to give hints that this sort of antipathy between these two people needed to change. So one time he actually took his disciples straight through Samaria. He stopped in a village. He had an important conversation in John chapter 4 with a Samaritan woman. She was not only a Samaritan, she had lived an immoral life, and he shocked his disciples by having an important conversation with her. And then just before Jesus ascended into heaven, at the beginning of the first week of this series on Acts, um, we uh, read how Jesus said to his disciples that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, that was, they were cool with that, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Philip is taking Jesus at his word. 
breaking century-long taboos, and he went into Samaritan territory to tell people about Jesus. Now, what Philip did here is extremely important because when he preached, he communicated that Jesus was not just for Jews, but for the whole world. And he did more than preach because he performed dramatic miracles. Let me just read verses 6 to 8. It says, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. There was great joy in the city. Now, miracles in the ancient world were highly valued as giving evidence of the sign that God was at work. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that they were more gullible than we are. There are people today, skeptical age, who deny miracles on principle. And I'll just say, miracles were rare then, they're rare today, but they do occur. And in the early days of the Christian church, God used miracles like the ones that Philip was able to perform here to attract attention to the message, to validate what they were saying. And the response was enthusiastic. There was great joy in the city. By the way, this idea of joy, I think, is important because occasionally I will hear someone say that Christians take all the fun out of life. And I know there are some Christians who are downers, who project the idea that Christianity is all doom and gloom. They make it sound as if following Jesus is a super serious deal and you should not smile or ever look happy. But that's complete nonsense. Choosing to follow Jesus doesn't suddenly mean that everything in your life will go perfectly, that your problems will all go away. That's certainly true. And yet, following Jesus is the best, most satisfying way to live. With Jesus at the center of your life, you will find peace and meaning and purpose and hope for eternity. If you choose to follow Jesus, you will discover that he satisfies your deepest longings and will transform you into the person that God has created you to be. So pursue God. Nothing else will satisfy the desires of your heart. To put God at the center of your life is to lose nothing and gain everything. Surrender your life to him and find what the Samaritans found, that in God is the source of unspeakable joy. But the story that Luke tells at the first half of Acts chapter 8 is a complicated one. It's an awkward one. It starts well, but Luke tells us that something a bit darker is going on at the same time. And it's here that Luke introduces us to a controversial figure, a man named Simon. Let me read about Simon, beginning in verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished at the great signs and miracles he saw. So Simon is a local guy. For some time, he's been doing remarkable things. The version that I read calls what he did sorcery. Uh, other translations call it magic, although we're not talking about sleight of hand or the kind of illusions that uh, performers do on the stages, stages in Las Vegas. But Simon deceived people with his tricks. Although he fooled the people, since they believed that he was doing this by the power of God, he was really doing these things by the power of Satan. And it had been going on for a long time. And then Philip came along, and he brought this good news of Jesus and performed miracles that were far more extraordinary than anything that Simon had been doing. Simon was so impressed that he decided to follow Jesus, and along with many of the others, he was baptized. He followed Philip everywhere and was astounded by what Philip was able to do. 
Now, sorcery or magic attracted large crowds in the ancient world. Again, by magic, we're not describing illusions that uh, had been figured out cleverly to give the appearance of magic. Simon's magic had a supernatural source, not God, again, but they were attributed to Satan. Verse 14, it says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there because, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they'd simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now let me just explain what's going on. So we had Philip preaching in the beginning, and people responded to what he did. Philip did a number of miracles. And now we have new figures, Peter and John, who are familiar to us if you've been with us during the series. They're the key leaders in the church in Jerusalem, and they've been sent from Jerusalem to Samaria to check this all out. So what are they doing? Well, the leaders in Jerusalem, when they heard what Philip was up to, were impressed, but they were also a bit skeptical, and there are two reasons why. The first one is Philip's a young leader, and not everyone's sure that they can trust him. Now, when they check him out, they turned out that he was doing everything in the right way. But the other reason they wanted to check all of this out is, frankly, due to ethnic prejudice. Remember how I talked about the Samaritans and how they were viewed? Well, unfortunately, the first Christians in Jerusalem, they were all Jewish, and Philip's gone over into an area that most Jews would have avoided, maybe have never been, among a people that they held in contempt. And Philip had taken seriously what Jesus had said. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so he went, taking the case of Jesus into that area, and the people responded. So the leaders in Jerusalem sent Peter and John to check this out. Now, there's a really important irony here. Um, you may know that Acts is written by a man named Luke, and there's a biography in the New Testament also called Luke. It's the two books that, that Luke wrote. In Luke chapter 9, Luke tells a story about a time that Jesus was in Samaria and encountered some opposition. And here's what John said to Jesus. He said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? So that's Peter, or excuse me, John's attitude toward the Samaritans. Jesus, in that case, turned to him and firmly rebuked him. No, that's not what we're going to do. Well, in this case, Peter, John, they've been changed. They see what's going on, but they do pray that the new believers might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this can be a little bit confusing. The primary message of the New Testament is that anyone who trusts Jesus, who puts their faith in him, receives the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit when they do that, when they have that faith experience. It's not a second experience. It's something that comes simultaneously with faith. Although you may remember the first week that we talked about this book, uh, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, that we described the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit first came. It was promised by Jesus. It wasn't something that was part of the Old Testament uh, Jewish experience. It was a new experience that Jesus had promised, that once he left, he would leave behind the indwelling power of the Spirit in the life of a Christian. But that didn't happen until the day of Pentecost, when for the first time, those who put their faith in Jesus experienced this indwelling power of the Spirit. Peter and John were the key ones that day. Peter preached a sermon where thousands became Christians. Now, one explanation of why this second event took place in Samaria is that God knew that the folks who were part of the church in Jerusalem needed to hear tangible proof that the Samaritans were truly in, truly in the church. 
It may also have been that the Samaritans themselves needed a similar proof in order to understand and feel that they were truly connected and fully included in the church. So this is a sort of Samaritan Pentecost. Now they know, and the church in Jerusalem knows, that they've been fully received by God into the church. Regardless, when Peter and John lay hands on them and prayed for the people, the effects were dramatic. And our friend Simon is also impressed, very impressed. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me this also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So what he recognized is that Peter and John had more powerful magic than he did, and when he saw that they placed hands on these believers, prayed for them, and they were transformed, he wanted that power too. Not the gift of the Spirit particularly, but the power to lay hands on people and give them the gift of the Spirit. So he asked Peter, would you just sell me this power so that I can do this cool trick? Here's how Peter responded, verse 20. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought that you could buy this, the gift of the God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. So Peter's response is harsh. It's swift, it's sharp. Literally, he says, to hell with you and your money. The Holy Spirit isn't for sale. Your offer shows that you don't understand what this is all about. Repent. Your heart isn't right with God. And pray and ask him to forgive you for even thinking you could buy God off. And then he accuses Simon of being captive to sin. Simon is so shaken that he asks Peter, pray to the Lord for me that nothing you have said may happen to me. And with that, Simon's story ends, and we're left wondering what happened. There are a number of later references to Simon in some of the writings of the early Christian church. Some of the leaders, 50, 100 years later, uh, wrote about what happened to Simon. Mostly they were speculating. All of the reports are a little bit different. And they're almost all very harsh towards Simon. Some even say that he became a key opponent of Christians. We don't really know. In fact, I think it's equally possible that there's a happy ending here. I believe Simon genuinely believed what Philip had to say. I believe his decision to be baptized was with the desire to let others know his commitment to follow Jesus. And I believe that he was genuinely impressed with the miracles that he saw Philip do. And I believe that his request at the end that Peter pray for him was sincere. But Simon had also spent almost his entire life chasing the spectacular. He'd used the dark power he'd previously discovered to amaze everyone in Samaria. So when people said he was rightly called the great power of God, Simon didn't correct them. Instead, he kept trying to impress people with his sorcery, the magic tricks that kept him in the public eye. He wanted to be someone great. And even though he'd heard the good news that Philip brought to the people about Jesus, old habits died hard. The most charitable way to see Simon is to see someone who needed to understand that the Spirit of God cannot be controlled, that God will not accept bribes, that we're not to seek the spectacular, but to seek God, and if he chooses to do something spectacular, fine. But our job is to seek him and to tell others about what he's done in our lives, spectacular or not. The reason Peter is so hard, though, on Simon is that his motives were out of whack. He's not so much interested in bringing the Holy Spirit to others as he is the power and prestige that comes if he could do the sorts of things that Peter and John were doing. 
It's not so much about blessing others as about bringing attention to himself and maybe making a little money on the side. This week I was with a man that I deeply respect. Um, He's retiring at the end of a long and very successful career. One time he told me that early on when he was a young leader, he noticed that the two things that tended to trip leaders up were fame and money. So he prayed that he would neither be famous nor rich. Now the truth is he's fairly well known in some circles, although not nearly so well known as he could be. He's never sought the limelight. He's been far more ambitious for the things of God and things God cares about than about calling attention to himself. And now, at the end of his career, he's finishing well. Each one of us has a choice. We can either make much of Jesus or we can make much of ourselves. And we need to remember what Simon should have learned, that God grants us gifts as he chooses. And the gifts he gives are not for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. And we should never try to bargain with God. Now, I don't know why Luke doesn't tell us how Simon's story ends. I'm very curious. But I do know that the forgiveness that was offered him is possible. And even though he was full of himself and captive to sin, he was not a lost cause. It may well be that he turned things around. That's what I'd certainly like to think. So now, what do we do? What are the lessons that we can learn from Simon's story? How can we live it out? Well, the first lesson, I think, is to be careful about our mixed motives. Now, as you can already tell, my sympathies are with Simon. Not because I want to whitewash his misdeeds or give him a free pass for his obvious sins, but because, as harsh as it might sound, I think there's a little bit of Simon in each one of us. At least I know there is with me, because I'm a mixed bag. My specific temptations may not be exactly the same as Simon's, but I know that even my best intentions, even the things I try to do that would be appear most pure, are often tainted by mixed motives. For Simon, it was greed and the desire for fame. That led him to cut corners, to look for ways to access God's power to do good, not to help people, but to call attention to himself. Instead of humble service, he was looking for recognition, to have people think of him, not of God. And all of us have our own mixed motives. My own experience is that the more I pursue God, the more he reveals to me these motives. Sometimes I've found those motives, uh, mixed motives, whatever the bad part of it is, goes away. Other times, there are things that reoccur, and I need to understand and be aware of them to be able to allow God to help me keep them in check. But it's an ongoing struggle, one I and you need to be vigilant in. The second lesson we can learn is to be aware of Satan's power. One of the realities we all need to be aware of is that Satan is alive and well. The Bible tells us he's powerful, and that if we allow him to have influence in our lives, He can do some very dark things in and through us. But before you start freaking out, know that the power of God that's in us is infinitely more powerful. I quoted this verse last week from 1 John 4, 4, but it's worth repeating. And that is, greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. So understand that far greater than Satan's power is the power of God in our lives. In fact, the strategy that's most effective is one that's suggested by James, who wrote in James 4, 7, and 8, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. In other words, James says, Focus your intention on pursuing God, not fighting Satan. Nonetheless, though, we must be aware of Satan's power. A third lesson is that we need to learn to seek God, not the spectacular. I mentioned earlier that I believe that those who were later critical of Simon attributed all sorts of misconduct to him, 
I, I think that they're most likely wrong, or at least I'd like to think that they're wrong. Why? Because the temptation that Simon fell prey to was one that many of us face. He was impressed with the spectacular. He knew from personal experience that people are impressed with what's big and flashy and spectacular. It's true in entertainment, and unfortunately, it's true in the church as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, died right at the end of World War II, um, fighting the Nazis, he was a pastor in Germany, once said that a cult of personality has no place in the Christian church. We must, he said, put our trust not in a person because they are extraordinarily talented, but because of their faithfulness in serving Jesus Christ. Instead of brilliant personalities, he said, we need faithful servants of Christ. We live in a celebrity culture, um, a place that likes to elevate people, and unfortunately that's crept into the church. And when this happens, the idea of humble service is lost. The church doesn't so much need to be made hip as to be made faithful. The church should be guided not by human wisdom and a desire for attention, but by the wisdom of God. A fourth lesson is to remember to put God first, not ourselves. Simon had spent his entire life trying to attract the attention of others, and it led him in the wrong direction. So wrong, in fact, that whether he realized it or not, he ended up making a bargain with the devil. Probably the most important lesson we can learn is to seek to glorify God in all we do. This means that we have to do things in such a way that brings honor to God, not to ourselves. To do things in a way that makes God, not ourselves, look good. The final lesson is that uh, we need to remember that as much as Christian life is full of danger, life is full of danger, ways that we can get tripped up, we can also live our lives filled with joy. I mentioned earlier the joy that the Samaritans experienced when they heard the good news of Jesus. And that should be our experience as well. One famous pastor in a previous generation said this. He said, Christians ought to be the happiest people in the world. People should be coming to us and constantly asking the source of our joy and delight. Now, to be clear, he wasn't saying that we'll always be in a good mood. Christian happiness or joy doesn't mean that everything is going well. But it is a deep contentment, a confidence that our lives, no matter how well things are going, that we can find in God a kind of joy that transcends our circumstances. Recently, I've been with a number of people who are in the midst of challenging circumstances, health issues, depression, unemployment, relationship difficulties, the list goes on and on. But each one of these folks, Christians all, have described their trust in God, not because they see a clear path forward or a way out, but because the God that they've come to know and trust, they believe, is with them. They have a joy that's independent of circumstances, a confidence that comes because they know they are deeply loved by God because they know that Jesus died for their sins and they have experienced the joy of their salvation. And so too can we. Let's pray. Father, this is an awkward and uncomfortable story, one filled with a character that most of us probably wouldn't have liked had we met him. And yet, Father, we're grateful that Philip took the risk of going beyond his own, perhaps, prejudice, beyond his ethnic uh, uh, heritage, going to people who needed to hear the story of Jesus. Thank you for the way that you empowered him to preach and to do miraculous deeds, and his love for the people, to share with them the good news of the kingdom of God, that Jesus the Messiah had come. Father, I pray that we would be careful also to avoid the mistakes and errors that Simon made in his life. 
I pray, Father, that we would remember that even if we make these sorts of mistakes ourselves, that you always offer, just as Peter offered, uh, uh, Peter offered um, Simon, that there is forgiveness, that we can repent and turn to you and be cleansed from our sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.